Welcome back to Out of the Margins for the final installment of our series on police-free schools in Rochester, New York, moderated by my colleague, AFF Program Officer Nayoka Acevedo, and Co-Executive Director Jamie Capel from the Communities for Just Schools Fund. Let's jump right into the conversation. So Destiny, hi, I'm so glad you're able to join us. So we had folks who were parent organizers, student organizers, community organizations, and folks from the district talk about the journey of Rochester schools from about 2006 up to the present. So Rosemary kind of opened us up and grounded us in the history of how we got to this point, right? Some of the beginning organizing she started to do locally with parents, um, Stevie and Iman and Talia jumped in and spoke about the student organizing that happened. But the very, very first question that we asked folks in the beginning was, who are you, what organization you represent, and what brought you to this work? So my name is Destiny Ford. I represent Teen Empowerment, and I believe what brought me to this work is the fact that for so long, um, the way things are running in my school, because I've been in RCSD my whole life, and for so long, the way that things were going was like normalized to me. I didn't see a problem with it until I actually started working with Teen Department and started learning that like, oh, I shouldn't feel pushed out at school. I should feel comfortable at school. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for that, Destiny. Um, I'm going to ask another question. OK, can you hang out with us for a little bit? <laughs> thank you, Destiny. Um, can you share your organizing journey for Police Free Schools? Um, so I think my organizing journey started off, the first step for me was like realize, or like understanding and knowing and learning from TE that like, this isn't normal necessarily have police in schools and knowing that like getting deeper into it, like the reasons that we have police in our school, it isn't necessarily that we're more of a threat. It's just that like the way that our system was built, so to say, kind of just like made it easier or justify having police in our school in the um, urban communities with majority of black and brown students. So first it took me to like even see that, okay, this is like something's off here. And then, so once, like, you know, I got past that step, then it turned into organizing more and joining other people before me that have been organizing, like former youth organizers at Team Empowerment that have been working on this issue and things like the student, the school conduct. So it, yeah, like, it's just been a relief to know that, we, like, you know, we got it done and it's over with now, but just looking back, it's kind of like, like sad that it even had to be like talked about or done because considering like, I don't know, the year ran and stuff, it just, yeah. Can you share a little bit about your experience in the Rock Restorative Group as a rock responder? Okay, thank you. So um, I am a rock responder and a rock responder is a youth or a student that has been trained by a leader or staff and rock responders. And so it is a two-day training that is usually outside of the school where we first like build relationships with each other, we get to know each other, 
and then we get skills and training for things like active listening and how to like read signs and facial expressions when someone's like you know like getting upset or may need to talk and how to talk to people without blaming the person or making them say like oh so why did you do that or if you would have did this when it went out the outcome would have been different so just kind of learning how to listen to people without blaming them and trying to think of like realistic solutions that will lead to people going back to the classroom instead of an ISS or out of school suspension or just not being in or long-term suspension just not being in school for a long time. So um, I knew, I first heard of Black responders when I was in ninth grade and I decided to join when I was in 10th grade and did like a lot of restorative work such as training students and sometimes teachers and just ways of like active listening and things so like students don't feel pushed out and kind of like just ways to break the school to prison pipeline that's a lot of um, stuff we've learned and talked about and so I believe that was very important going along with like police preschools because like the ideology is that if we just talk to one another and treat each other like humans and like have circles and try to get to the root cause of problems, then we won't need like for students to be suspended for nonviolent acts or we won't need students to get arrested in school for just simply having a bad day. I'm gonna just share something that we didn't hit on at all um, that maybe Destiny could speak to a little bit is that actually the odd way that we got this done was through the city council which was different you know than probably a lot because basically city council cut it from the budget um maybe dust would you like to speak about just when you spoke out at city council it was over zoom because it was <laughs> yes so i did speak at a zoom for city council and initially i was kind of like confused a little bit because it was a joint meeting but eventually when I got on and I seen the testimonials before me, so then I kind of understood and it was like I was coming to advocate to remove SROs from the building. And so like me and a couple other people spoke with like our testimonials and how it made us feel in school, like coming into school and being greeted by scanners and knowing that police are in our schools. It was a different experience because it was a, like kind of the first time like advocating for that over via Zoom instead of like in person and stuff. But so I believe it was very helpful. And if like, it's a great feeling knowing that like the people in power, people in charge, like listened and heard what we had to say because there were a lot of other people advocating to take SROs out of the schools. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I wanna, I wanna in introduce us and bring us back to Ruth. Um, hi Ruth. And I would love for Ruth to share both her role on the inside, some of the hurdles she faced supporting this movement and this change from the inside, and the role that restorative justice uh, played. Um, if, if you can dive a little bit into that and, and provide, us the, provide us the context for that. Sure, thank you so much. Uh, so our uh, district, when we started this work, we were at about 28, 29,000 students in our school district. And, um, you know, we really had a plan on how to implement the work. Uh, so initially, I was very naive in thinking that this is research-based. This is 
a great way to build community, to engage students, to engage faculty and staff, and really had this idea that it would be embraced very easily. That, of course, was, was not the case. So really had to get back to this idea of, so we believe that relationships are uh, an important element of restorative practice. So really started visiting school leaders one by one and their school team and sharing with them not only the research and not the how, but really the why. And, and, it, and it was, when I think back about it, I felt like a salesperson, right? But it was really something that I believed in and really inviting them to take this journey with us to learn how to become more restorative, to learn how to have true shared power, shared vision, and so forth. And it was very important to me, even though I got a lot of pushback about that, because the one great thing about administration is that we want to be top down, right? So we have a new program, we have a new mandate, everybody does it right now. I really push back to say this needs to be by invitation. It is the essence of restorative practice that it is done by invitation. It is done willingly. And that was really hard for the system to understand because we have always mandated from central office down to the school buildings what schools need to do. And at first, I was kind of told, we'll let you do this, but if you don't get any takers, we're going to start telling which schools have to participate in, in the training and engage in the work. Had overwhelming response the first year. Only had the capacity to really support about 10 schools because it was going to be a year-long journey on evaluating the practices. Um, how does restorative practice fit into the current infrastructure? If not, how do we tear down that infrastructure and build a new infrastructure based on restorative philosophies? And it was such an overwhelming response that agreed that year to do 13 schools with a very small staff, right? And uh, we understood right along that it was not going to be a one-day training of a superintendent conference day, that it had to be a year-long commitment. So each school that engaged in the work had basic commitments that they would send a team of champions to learn each month during the professional learning circles, that they were going to go back, turnkey those concepts, allowed us to come and do an appreciative inquiry to evaluate what was already working in their particular school community and to really elevate that versus focusing on what wasn't working. And it took off. And what I realized very quickly was, I think maybe year two or year three, uh, you know, one of the teachers said to me in a training, you know, she was like, you're, you're demanding a lot from us. You're demanding for us to be restored with our students, to be restored with each other, but we're so empty. And really had to learn the parallel training to uplift our teachers and administrators, right? So it was a demand that administrators had to be restorative to teachers and provide a restorative environment so teachers can have the support to do that with the students and, and so forth. And then the other element we realized early on that was missing was we were too dependent on the adults to change the system and realize the power of our students. So that's when we realized, you know, what, we're going to do a parallel training where students are also going to be taught restorative practice, student advocacy through restorative practice. And again, even then there was a pushback from the system, this whole idea of, you know, we're going to do it to them and not this whole idea of the, you know, we talk about the social discipline window, living with the width. So we trained over 300 students and not just trained them to have knowledge, but trained them to go back and evaluate their school climate and culture and not wait for the administrators to say what they're going to do, but to also become active participants to turn that around. So we had rock responders who would respond to students' need in a restorative way and not necessarily always the adults. We had our youth train their teachers and building administrators around restorative practice concepts, anti-racism, 
it, it was just phenomenal. You know, wonderful work that uh, was getting recognized everywhere but the Rochester City School District, right? We were getting calls from Denver. We were getting calls from other places. Really remind me, and by no means am I saying, am I Jesus, but in the Bible where it says, a prophet is without honor, saving his own country. We were fighting to keep the program alive in the Rochester Street School District. Other school districts were begging us to come and show them how we're doing the work, uh, which is very exhausting. So as I said, it is not for the faint of heart. If you are a person who's status quo, I need a job, I'm going to keep a job, this will certainly make you a target, right? It's, just, it's, just, it's, it's really close. Our educational system, even though it's an urban school this system, it still embraces the concept of white supremacy, right? Suppressing, suppressing voice, this whole idea of maintaining power and keeping power uh, and so forth. And restorative practice is contrary to that. It's this idea that safety comes from building community. Right? Safety comes from learning and hearing each other's stories and connecting as, as human beings and requiring us to tear down some of these walls, right? Whether it's, it's our age, our gender, our, you know, whatever we come, whatever privilege we come to the table with, when we sit in a circle, that privilege has to, has to go away. You can't hold on to that, to that space in a circle. So we began to see folks who were really believing the work and really empower them in their spirit and influence. And, and in their school community to really begin to do the work. There were times where, you know, we said close your, you know, once you close your classroom door, nobody can tell you what to do. What you decide whether you're going to be restorative or not. You decide whether you're going to build community or not, right? And this whole idea that the instrument is you. It's not a program. It's not a book. In the beginning, I've heard a lot of people say, we have so much on our plate. You know, how can you ask us to do something else? And one day it dawned on me, and I'm not saying I invented this concept, but one day it really dawned on me in a training, like, this is the plate, right? This is the foundation. And then I said, I guarantee you, if we practice this with fidelity, if we endeavor to learn, we'll see our grades improve, we'll see our school community improve, we'll even see our relationships, teacher to teacher, administrator to administrator improve, and we have the data to show us that that is the case. Thank you so much for that. I think, you know, for me, what I'm hearing you share is that, you know, restorative justice is a values-based practice. And so everything leading up to the moment where the district adopts restorative justice, you see from parents, which Rosemary and Ricardo shared, you see in organizers that they are all already holding those restorative justice values, right? In the work that they're doing and the work that parents are doing and the work that organizers are doing, that young people are doing. And so then at the time when it, it feels like at the time where the district then begins to adopt these policies, then it's really about a continuity of a value system. And, and so it's just really beautiful to hear you share. And I think you're absolutely right. In so many ways, we are the tool right? We are, there's, there's not a thing that you can go out and purchase. It's really about like, how does one shift their value system to begin to deconstruct power so that relationships are held? So thank you so much for that. Um, really, really wonderful to hear. So we have talked a lot about what real victory looks like. You know, while we haven't necessarily named it explicitly, I'll do that now, what we are hearing from the experts we're hearing from today is the work that it takes to dismantle the ways in which anti-Blackness shows up in systems. And what I have heard is how much it is about creating a strong we, despite the forces that constantly work against that. 
And so what we'd love to talk a little bit about now is what will be necessary to ensure in the unpredictable, uncertain times that we are in with this dual pandemic of systemic racism and COVID, um, what will be necessary to protect the wins that you have all secured, um, including fighting for leaders who've done so much important work. So Stevie, we'd love to come to you for your thoughts on that question. Oh, there's there's so many layers to it, so many layers. Um, so when we, one, getting cops out of schools, um, that was something that we honestly thought was another three years away from actually happening. And we must be very, very clear that getting cops out of school was just one step towards the ultimate victory towards having a positive school climate and implementing the code of conduct. So we are still very much on the journey towards a much larger victory. I, I said before that while we are reimagining what a good school climate looks like, um, those in opposition are reimagining what policing looks like. And we must constantly be on guard to make sure that they are not finding new ways to subvert our gains. Um, that is extremely, extremely important. And the only way that we can make those gains sustainable towards our ultimate goal is to constantly be involved with the parents, the students, and the teachers. As organizers, it is not up to us to dictate what school safety looks like. As organizers, it is up to us to present to the community what is happening behind the scenes that they might not necessarily be aware of. Have those conversations about what direction do we want to move in? What resources and tools do you need to make that happen? And let's go. So we're constantly on the road to making sure that there is no pushback because we do not want to see a school where they hire more centuries, essentially, um, who are not equipped to deal with traumas in our students. They're not equipped to de-escalate situations. They're not equipped to get to the root causes of harm or the situations that our students are dealing with. They are there to dole out punishment. They are there to push kids out of school. They are there to make adults feel safe. They are not there to make students feel safe. So we need to ask, what resources are we lacking in our school district that will make our school safe, that will build a good school climate that will make sure that our students are getting the quality education that they want, that they need, where they are feeling engaged and they are thriving and they are learning things that they want to be learning and that they are able to go to a trusted individual such as a, a restorative coach to really talk through their emotions. These are incredibly important times to students in their development. And so making sure that we are investing in our schools and in students. I always say engaging with those at the RCSD level, you have to look past the words 
and look at the actions and look at what individuals are prioritizing for our students. If you are prioritizing new ways of policing, if you are prioritizing administration and not prioritizing the needs of the student, that tells me all I need to know. And that tells me what information I need to present to those in the community so that they are aware of what's happening, that they know when these school board meetings are, that they are utilizing their voices. Because if you are under the microscope and you're constantly being called out by the students, the teachers, and the parents, you have nowhere to run or hide. And you have to answer to those people because we are the constant. The students, the parents, and the teachers are the constant in our society. And during COVID, we have really seen how central schools are to community safety. This is where students go to get resources that they might not necessarily have outside of the school setting, access to food, access to mental health professionals, access to things that make them safe and in turn makes our community safe. I hope that answered the question. Again, there's so many layers and I feel like that question in itself could be an entirely whole podcast session on its own. So I really hope that I did that question justice. That was beautiful, Stevie. I feel like what you did was just kind of help us to see the fact that, you know, we have to talk about what it takes, what it requires to change policy and practice to change the lived experiences, the ways in which as hometown hero, Dr. Bettina Love, who went to Edison High School and is now a nationally recognized expert on social emotional learning and abolitionist pedagogy, as she talks about, like that we have to get beyond all the ways in which schools are spirit murdering black and brown children. And, and doing that really requires us to reimagine safety in schools. Um, so thank you for kind of that word that helps us to really understand that this whole conversation around police-free schools is not just whether, as Tali said earlier, police are in schools or not, right? It's what we do instead to really embrace the creation of a sense of belonging in schools. And Ruth, I think your tremendous work and the ways in which you've been moving that I just want to also lift up that Rochester has done this in such an unusual order compared to a lot of places, right? You are national leaders when it comes to what does it mean to like really invest in a community-led effort in partnership with a school district to do authentic, culturally grounded and affirming restorative practices. And you're doing it still despite all of the challenges that you are being told make it impossible. Budget challenges, staffing challenges, et cetera. And we need our audience to understand that the resources to do that work are so important. So I'm just grateful to all of you for tying your story together. Nayoka, where do we want to, which of these questions do we want to use to kind of, to wrap? Yeah, I would love, love, love if we could take a minute and just go through the room, the virtual room, and share, um, share your response to this question. What is your ultimate vision for Rochester schools? I'll jump in just on that uh, because we, we have uh, a goal that we always had for the Community Task Force on School Climate was that our vision was uh, schools become places where it's a joy to teach and learn. I just um, wanted to also um, add to that. I know uh, our mission and vision statement for our Rock Restorative work in the district 
has centered around um, where school and community are engaged as a community, right? We, we often sometimes think of the school as this isolated, separate uh, sector, but it really is, is not. It's, it's an extension of the community so that we would really embrace this true concept of, of community in which we take care uh, of, of each other um, and, uh, and take care of our children. So, you know, ensuring that the children are, are well and they're only as well as their community as well. I'll chime in here. Uh, I would say that my vision is, again, it, it's layered. The first would be seeing our district receive the resources and the money that is owed to them as per their constitutional rights. Um, and then I would love to see every school and every function within schools really adopt an anti-racist model and they work to address the anti-Blackness that lives in our spaces. Um, I think I want to second what Stevie said about our schools being provided with the resources that we really need to make the changes that we need to make. Um, we need resources. We need the funding that we have been denied for so, so long, and that's really hurting our students and our most vulnerable students. So I want to second what Stevie said. And I also want to say that <laughs> I think my vision for a school is where students understand that schools are there to serve them. Like they understand that the schools are there for their benefit, that they're that their education should is something um, for them and something that they are essentially like ah words. Um, but that their education is something that is is for them and is something that they can they can use and something that that is meant to help them. And they truly feel that. And I think that a lot of students don't feel that right now. But I, I would love schools where students understand that not understand, but feel that the education they're being given is truly for them, is truly, um, yeah, for them. Um, and so, yeah, that, that would be my vision of um, what I would love schools to look like. So my overall vision for what RCSD should look like is a place where students feel comfortable and safe and are actually passionate about going to school so that the learning experience doesn't feel like something that's forced or dragged students to actually be happy about homeschool. My vision is um, for parents to work, teachers to work with parents instead of working with cops to try to make students successful. It's just so important. If, if you can't work with me, if you're afraid of me, you're definitely going to be afraid of my child. Um, that's my vision. Thank you for listening to Out of the Margins. If you'd like to know more about any of the amazing groups featured in this episode, we've included links to their websites in our episode descriptions. Stay tuned for our next episode of Out of the Margins. Yeah. 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 We're losing all humanity. They fire at our family. Our flow will be the remedy.